So this morning we had some great questions about how we bring mindfulness to thought and emotion, and that's what I'd like to talk more about tonight. So we often talk about how um, you could say freedom in the Buddhist idea of the word includes everything. We've mentioned a number of times that there's nothing that we can't be mindful of. There's nothing that we can't bring a kind awareness to. And thinking and emotions are such a huge part of our life that it seems like it would be really useful to know how to uh, bring mindfulness to them. And it's also, I would say, it's parts of our lives that we, we don't often take time to, to sit down and try to understand. And like I said, there's such a huge part of our lives, it seems like it would be really helpful to know about thought and how we get tangled in it, how we can get untangled, how we can live at peace with like, these crazy minds and all the thoughts and emotions that go through them in our hearts. Yeah. So the first time I meditated, I think I mentioned this morning, I gave up after five minutes. Um, I was 23 and I was living in Nicaragua. Nicaragua, I was a English teacher there. And um, some fellow uh, teacher was talking about this three-month retreat where you're silent for three months. And I said, I, I thought that sounded really interesting. I said, I'm going to do that next year. And um, so then I thought maybe I should meditate first. And um, so I got all set. With my, I had a cup of tea and I was sitting on a porch outside and I sat down and I couldn't follow half a breath, you know, half a breath, mind gone, you know, back half a breath, mind gone. And after five minutes, I said, nobody can do this. It's impossible. And um, then I signed up for the three-month course. And uh, <laughs> here I am, <laughs> almost 20 years, almost 30 years later. <laughs> so first insight in practice um, and often a continuing insight is that our minds are generally a little bit more out of control than we had imagined, you know, quite contrary to our expectations that we ought to be able to sit down and more or less tell our minds what to do, right? I think that we kind of had that idea, you know, tell the mind to stay on the breath at autumn. It should be able to do that. That's not asking too much, is it? Well, contrary to those expectations, we usually find that it's um, what we call our minds is this uh, tumble of um, images and thoughts and and reactions and judgments and likes and dislikes and it's quite chaotic. In Buddhism the untrained mind is often compared to a wild monkey swinging in the trees. Sometimes it's called monkey mind. And so we assume that our job then is to somehow get that to stop. That's what we usually think of as meditation. So we should sit down and get that to stop. And then we try to do that, right? Most of you have probably already tried to stop thinking. Any success? Anybody had success with that? <laughs> yeah, we, that's another insight we usually have pretty um, early on in practice is that it doesn't work to try to stop the mind from thinking. When we notice this chaotic nature of the mind, it's actually considered a very important insight. And it means that we're, we're, we're aware of what's happening rather than lost in a fog. 
So my first meditation, which I thought was so bad, was a good meditation because I was quite aware of what was happening in my mind. I just thought something else should be happening. That was the problem. But I was seeing, you know, half a breath, thought, come back, half a breath. I was seeing very clearly what was happening. There's a Burmese master who sometimes asks beginning students and even not-so-beginning students a little bit of a trick question. He says, how many breaths can you follow before your mind wanders off? And if they say 10, he thinks their practice is probably not very good. If they say, oh, two or three, then he thinks their practice is good because they're actually seeing what's happening. So don't get discouraged if that's what your experience is. It's actually a good sign. It means that you're seeing what's happening. And even if we spend the whole sitting this morning, I I mentioned, let's say your mind just feels like thinking. It doesn't really want to settle down with an anchor or even attempt to. (laughs) If we just notice we're thinking, and we can just note thinking, thinking, If you do that 10 times in a meditation period, that's 10 moments of mindfulness, and that's 10 more than you'd usually have. So that's great. You can be aware of thinking. So with with mindfulness meditation, we're not trying to get rid of thought, thought, but we're trying to understand thought. We really want to understand what it is, how we get stuck in it, and how we can get unstuck without making getting rid of it the goal. So we're not trying to suppress thoughts. We're actually trying to learn how to let them happen, let them be, without getting um, ensnared by them. And the way we can do this is we can notice the difference between thinking without awareness, without mindfulness, and being aware of thought. So let's start thinking without mindfulness. Um, So this is when we have some story going in our minds and we don't know that that's what's happening. And it's quite fascinating. It's really fascinating how this can happen. We're in the middle of that story and we believe it. It's true. And we believe the craziest things. I mean, think back to some of your meditations today. You, you believed some crazy things that, like, if somebody had told you it, there's no way you would have believed it. But because it's happening in our own minds and we're not aware of it, we believe it. And then we, so we create this huge story. There's this word in Pali called papancha, and it's how the mind makes stories, and they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we believe them. So, for example, you're waiting some night you were going to meet your girlfriend somewhere and you're waiting for her to show up and she's late. So five minutes pass, ten minutes pass, you start to make a story, right? Hmm, she's late. I bet she's not going to show up. Maybe this is her way of dumping me. Wow, that's really cruel. She's kind of mean. Oh, you know what? I remember, I bet she's hooking up with what's-his-name. I saw them making eyes at each other. Or what's her name? <laughs> I saw them making eyes at each other at that party last week. And, ah, and then, right, so you have this whole story going. You're really mad. And then she shows up, and you yell at her, right? So you've created this whole world, and she says, oh, there was an accident. 
traffic was slowed down. Wow, it's kind of amazing. That's, that's thinking without awareness. One time I was on retreat here, and um, we'll go back to notes on the board, um, which we mentioned last night. So I was on retreat, and my ex was also on retreat. And um, we had broken up. It had been a number of months before. Um, he had left me, and it was kind of painful still for me, but, you know, I was doing okay. But I was on retreat with him, which was kind of hard. And so at one point in the retreat, I saw a note on the board in his handwriting to a woman who I was fairly certain he was interested in. So I was just like, oh, he's writing notes to her. Oh, um, you know, he's rejected me, and I'm so lonely, and I'm going to be lonely the rest of my life, and nobody's going to want me. And, you know, I went on this huge, like, uh, story. And then I, I went through all these emotions. I was mad at him, and then I was lonely, and then I was sad. And, and so I decided I better get interested in this process with mindfulness or I was going to suffer a lot. So I got quite interested in it. I learned so much. So it took about a week. And what would happen at the, what happened at the beginning is all those thoughts and emotions, I believed them all. And I suffered a lot. And then over the, as the week passed, you know, it's like I would start to notice them with mindfulness and I started to see, oh, Maybe I didn't have to believe them. And it started to go really fast. So first of all, to go through that whole process would take like a long time, 10, 15 minutes maybe. And by the end of the week, it was like image of the note, thought of rejection, feeling lonely, sad, went like that, it was all done. It was quite interesting. And then after the retreat, I said to him, you know, I saw that note that you left to her on the, on the board. And he said, I didn't leave any notes on the board. I spent a whole week of my life making up a story and believing it. This is what happens <laughs> when we're not aware of thought. We create this whole universe and we believe it. So what happens when we um, turn our awareness to thought? And the moment of most interest is that moment that you wake up and notice you've been thinking. Check it out. Just notice what happens to the thought when you're aware of it. How powerful is the thought when you're aware of it? How powerful is the thought when you're not aware of it? Now, when you're not aware of it, a thought is super powerful, right? You saw what I did for a week. That's pretty powerful. When you're aware of it, what happens? Check it out. It's not so powerful. There's actually choice there. There's clarity. You can let it be. Maybe it disappears. Maybe it continues. So we're really interested in seeing that difference between the power of a thought when we're not aware and the power of a thought when we are aware. Another um, experience I had on retreat at one point a number of years ago is I started to judge everybody. So I went through this period of just, it was merciless. 
it felt like every third thought was some judgment about somebody. So I'd be, you know, uh, doing walking meditation. I'd say, oh, look at her. She really thinks she looks nice in that uh, outfit today. You know, I'd be in the lunch line, you know, like, oh, look at how much food he's taking. Like, (laughs) wow, you know, he doesn't eat that much. And, um, you know, and, oh, look at how that person walks. They really stop. They don't know how to be quiet in a meditation center. This went on and on and on. And I, it was quite unpleasant, right? I really was like, oh, I'm the world's worst meditator. And I was getting down on myself and really upset. So I went into an interview with my teacher. Meet, we call interviews sometimes, a meeting with my teacher. And, um, you know, I'm complaining about this. You know, I'm judging everybody. It's happening all the time. And he says to me, it's just a thought. And there was... It, there was something about that moment. It was like, oh, it's just a thought. So what's the difference if I have a thought of judging somebody and I'm not aware of it? There is a problem, right? I might treat them meanly. Certainly my mind isn't very nice when I'm feeling that way. I might, you know, cop an attitude towards them. Uh, Wars start that way, right? (laughs) But if I see that thought clearly, oh, look at her, she thinks she looks so pretty in that dress. There's not a problem if I don't believe it, right? So we start to see, this this is the fact that's probably the most helpful for thoughts, is we start to see you don't have to believe your thoughts. And then they're not a problem. Right? Some thoughts, or you can have some choice. You can check it out. There may be thoughts that are true, worth believing, but the, the, the awareness gives you that power to check it out. So the moment of um, waking up is really powerful. And if that's all you do the whole sitting is feel like you keep waking up out of a thought story over and over and over again, don't underestimate the power of that because each time you wake up, you're training the mind to be aware of thought rather than lost in thought. And you're giving yourself so much more choice over um, what happens in your mind. One way that it's sometimes expressed in... um, meditation practices like you can have it like um, you're, you're standing at a railroad crossing and a train goes by and you watch the cars go by that's like watching the thoughts go by and then every once in a while you'll find that you jump onto a, a train car and you go for the ride right and then at some moment you're like oh look what I did <laughs> you can get off the train that's what that moment of um, awareness gives you, um, the power to get off the train. It's great, that moment of waking up. I can't emphasize how, overemphasize how great it is. It's like we're learning, our thoughts, they like to hypnotize us. And when we have the moments of mindfulness, we're learning to de-hypnotize ourselves. So then we'll notice that some thoughts are um, what I call sticky. I mentioned that this morning. So there's some thoughts that are like, okay, you wake up out of the thought, right? You notice you're thinking, 
and then it sucks you right back in. You know, before you can go back to your breath or anything else, it's like you're back in. You're back on the train. <laughs> you jumped off the train, and then you jump right back on it, and you're and you're going for the ride again. So sometimes it's helpful in in practice. I talked this morning about using the note thinking, right? That you can you wake up and you can use that note thinking just to clarify that moment, help you pay attention. Sometimes if there's a repeating thought, you can um, be more specific. So you can note, oh, remembering, or planning, or judging. Or sometimes you can get playful. Let's say you, you have your top three stories. You can number them. It's like, oh, it's story number one. <laughs> it's story number two. It's story number three. It's like anything to kind of bring a little bit of clarity, a little bit of flexibility. Humor is very helpful when we look at our minds. You've got to have a sense of humor about what goes on in here or, or you're in trouble. <laughs> Sometimes with these um, with, uh, kinds of stories that repeat a lot and that we convince ourselves of, like, I'm not good enough. That's a real common story, right? Sometimes with those kinds of stories, I'll hear the thought, I'm not good enough. And then I'll add the sentence, this is a story I tell myself. And it kind of helps break the trance and to just help us understand that that is what we're doing. We're telling ourselves stories. And it gives that possibility that we don't have to believe it. So with the sticky thoughts, the ones that have an emotion under it, we can now segue into talking a bit about emotions. And basically an emotion is uh, thoughts and body sensations. That's pretty much what an emotion is. And so when we bring mindfulness to emotions, that's what we're going to be paying attention to, thoughts and body sensations. A number of years ago, I um, went to see the Dalai Lama. He was at Smith College nearby. And somebody asked him, what's the most important thing in life? And he had such a great answer. First of all, he said, well, it kind of depends on who you are. He says, if you're a a business person, maybe it's making money. (laughs) He said, if you're a young person, maybe it means getting a good job or finding a partner for life. And then he said, if you're a serious um, meditation practitioner, the most important thing is learning to work with afflictive emotions or learning to work with difficult emotions. That's a pretty strong statement, huh, about emotions. So if you're having some emotions today in your practice, that's great. You're right on track. (laughs) You're dealing with what um, we need to learn how to deal with. So how do we work with emotions skillfully? Well, let's look at how we deal with emotions if we're not aware. So if we're not aware, we either usually drown or repress. So drowning means that the emotion comes up and we get lost in it. We believe the thoughts. 
we lose perspective, we see everything through a narrow lens, and usually um, with afflictive emotions, which I'm going to be talking about principally, we suffer a lot. And then the other extreme is to avoid emotion, to repress it, to push it away, to do anything not to feel. Restlessness, distractions, never stopping and facing ourselves, being incessantly busy is our, is our national favorite way of repressing emotion. It's just never stopping. That's why like, it takes so much courage to do what you guys have done. And certainly at times it can be helpful to repress certain emotions. You know, if you're going to make a scene, it's, it's probably a good idea to repress. Um, but it doesn't really solve uh, the issue. You know, sometimes like if, you, if we're angry and we keep kind of like pushing it down, then it comes out in little snide remarks, right, or little jabs at somebody or, um, you know, it kind of sneaks out. So neither of these extremes work so well, the drowning or the repressing. With meditation, we choose a third option that's right in the middle, um, mindful awareness. So we turn towards the emotion with mindfulness and with kindness, with metta, if we can. (laughs) We, We become very intimate with our emotional life. So I'm going to give you some tips on how we do that. It's helpful if we can name the emotion. Even that just starts to bring some clarity. So, oh, sadness feels like this, or anger feels like this. Or joy, happiness. We can also be mindful of, um, of pleasant emotions. Uh, I'm not going to focus on that tonight, but I want to point that out too. Oh, joy feels like this. And then if we can, it's really helpful to connect with an emotion in the body. Are there any physical sensations that correspond to it? So if it's anger, perhaps we feel a clenching in the chest or we feel heat. Or maybe even we feel like our fist wants to, you know, go like this. That's the easiest way to be with emotions with mindfulness is in the body. If they're, Not everybody experiences emotions in the body, but check it out. See what you notice. Then we want to see how we experience the emotion in the mind. And so one part of that is like the texture of the mind. We can see whether, let's say it's anger again. So does the mind feel tight, contracted? spacious, dull, alert, flexible, inflexible. We can kind of feel the the texture. And then we can notice what kinds of thoughts arise. So anger, maybe thoughts of revenge or um, or self-righteousness. I'm so right, you're so wrong. We're not so interested in the particular story. That question came up this morning, like if you have a kind of fear to, should we try to think about it and find out what's, uh, what's going on that's making us afraid? We're not so interested in the story. 
the particular story. We're, we're more interested in what is fear? What's the experience of fear? How do I get stuck in fear? How can I disentangle from fear? And that's actually, that has a more long-term benefit. So we could have one fear that we might figure out specifically what happened in one situation, and sometimes that can be useful. But with meditation practice, we're more interested in the experience of fear itself and how we can free ourselves from entrapment in it. More useful in general. And then we can notice with the thoughts that come with emotions how compelling they are. When, there, when there's a, 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 an afflictive emotion, thoughts are very convincing. They're very sticky. Like the last time you were angry at somebody, you really believed you were right, and you really believed that they were a jerk. It's a, you know, that it's, they're very seductive when there's an emotion present. And we're blinded. We, we see everything through a filter. So we start to learn to remember that when we're in the middle of an emotion. So when we're in the middle of fear, we're seeing life through a filter. And if we can remember that in that moment, it's super helpful. Again, we don't have to believe the thoughts. We can wait till the emotion passes, and then we can check out what's going on with a little more clarity. So we name the emotion. How do we feel it in the body? How do we experience it in the mind? And then what happens as we're with it? Does it get stronger? Does it go away? Does it change to another emotion? And then lastly, we look at how are we relating to that emotion? Do we want it to stay? Do we want to get rid of it? Or do we just let it be as it is? So I'll notice, mostly with afflictive emotions, we want to get rid of them, right? We want them to go away. What's that like? So let's say I'm experiencing fear and I want it to go away. What is that experience like? What's it like to exile a part of ourselves? It's actually kind of painful. Can we incline and, and consider accepting fear? That's our investigation. Can we let it be? And what happens, what we start to see is that um, the more space we make in our, in our minds, in our hearts for emotions, and the more that we can be intimate with them and accept them, they start to lose our, their power over us. That's different than they go away. But we, what, we, what happens is we're less dominated by them. And it, they still arise. It's part of being human. Most of us are going to feel emotions until the day we die. <laughs> it's just how we work. But we don't have to um, suffer because of them. That's the part that starts to change. So I'd like to give an example of an emotion that I, I, I worked with for many years. Um, Fear is my favorite afflictive emotion. Most people have a favorite. And um, 
one time I got, it's in, a number of years ago, I went to Burma and uh, somebody gave a, a, a Dharma talk on 10 kinds of equanimity. I thought that's so cool. And then somebody else, I, another monk I heard talked about 20 kinds of silence. I thought, wow. I thought, what do I know a lot about? And I thought, I know a lot about fear. So at one point I wrote a Dharma talk about all the different kinds of fear I had experienced in practice. It started out with 13 and it got, it's up to about 19 now. And for me it was really, it was a way of um, becoming intimate with fear and um, interested in it. You can actually get interested in fear. So one kind I worked with a lot when I was younger was, uh, I called it the black hole. It was this kind of fear where um, it felt like I was spinning in outer space and um, I was all alone and nobody cared about me. And so it was kind of a very lonely kind of fear. And I would fall into this fear and it would totally seduce me. I would believe it, right? It was terrifying. And um, so I started over time to learn how to be mindful of that experience. So the first thing that I had to do was to know that I was there, you know? So I, so I would wake up and it'd be like, oh, the black hole, <laughs> right? Before, without awareness, I, I didn't know that I was having an emotion. I was believing the whole experience, right? So the first thing was to wake up and go, oh, it's the black hole. How do I get out of here? That's like the most important thing to start with, with the real intense emotions is how do I get out of here? Because if you don't know how to get out, it's not so safe to be interested <laughs> because you're just going to get sucked in again, right? And suffer again. So I started to learn how to wake up in the middle of the black hole experience and get out of there. And so um, this is, was not just on the meditation cushion, be in my life too, right? So getting out of there would mean maybe I'd call a friend, I'd watch a movie, I'd clean the house, I'd do something that would um, get me out of that, that mind state or emotion. And after I, then after a while I became confident. I knew how to wake up in the middle of it and get out of it. And then I started to get interested in it. So I'd be like, I'd wake up, I'm in the black hole, and I'd be like, wow, what is this place? Be like, oh, look at those thoughts. Oh, wow. And look at, I feel hollow inside, right? It was, it was like, what is this experience? And so I started to um, get interested in it, be able to be in it a little bit, and even to start to care about myself a little bit in that place. So, so at first, you know, it was like the black hole, get rid of the black hole. I hate the black hole. I want the black hole to go away, right? I started to be in the black hole and be like, oh, ouch, this hurts. I care. I care about it. And then what happened after a while is one time I was sitting there and the black hole, it's like I could see it coming. And I was like, oh, hi, I know you. And the black hole was like, huh? You know, I mean, this is metaphorically speaking, right? But that's what the experience was like, was the black hole was like, and it didn't come. And it didn't, and it didn't come not because I hated it and didn't like it. It didn't come because I knew it so well. It couldn't seduce me anymore. So that, do you get the progression here? This is like how we work with the deep ones, the real difficult ones. First, we have to know how to get out. Then we can get interested. And when we get more and more intimate, um, and really know these places, uh, they lose their power.
And I'm not saying I never experienced that anymore, but not really. I, I experience other kinds of fear. <laughs> but that one really, for the most part, it, it just doesn't come anymore. So then another thing to explore with emotions is like, are we trying to be mindful of them to try to get rid of them? So that's a really good thing to notice, to be careful of. Because if we try to dive into these difficult places to get rid of them, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So if we're like trying to be aggressively um, aware of an emotion to get rid of it, we should back off. Just back off, leave it alone. Wait until we can bring um, a little more interest to the experience. Sometimes um, meditators will say to me, you know, I know I have this emotion and I really wanna, I want it to come up so I can feel it. But really what, they are, what they're doing is, I compare it, it's like they're, they're, they're standing outside of a foxhole and they have a baseball bat. And they're like, come out little foxy. You know, I'm not gonna hurt you. <laughs> You know, I, I promise I won't hurt you. you know? And the fox isn't dumb. You know, it's not going to come out. <laughs> so that attitude of the baseball bat, that's like, like trying to be aware of an emotion to get rid of it. It's like I'm just going to club it as soon as I can. Not so helpful. Back off. Another really important thing about working with emotions is to understand that every emotion is impermanent. It's not going to last. Buddhism says everything's impermanent. Um, um, but with emotions, it's really helpful to know this. Because like, if we're really stuck in emotion, part of us think it's going to happen forever, right? We have that experience. Whether we're, The last time you were happy, really just happy, 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 you thought you were going to be happy the rest of your life, didn't you, on some level? I mean, if we think about it, we don't. No, of course not. But when we're lost in an emotion, we think it's going to last forever. Like when I was lost in the black hole, I really believed I was going to feel that way the rest of my life. So we start to be able, in the middle of a, an emotion, to just know this isn't going to last. It will change. Remembering that is super helpful. Again, we can just let it be, let it pass. Another thing that we explore with emotions um, with Buddhism is, it's called not-self. It's, it's a little bit... Um, tricky to understand, but with emotions, what we start to understand is that they're not so personal. Like when we're stuck in an emotion, we're, we, when we identify with it, as we say in Buddhism, when we identify with it, we take it really personally. But when we start to feel emotions with awareness, we can see that it's just an experience that arises because of certain conditions coming together. It passes away when conditions change. And it's not personal. That gives us a little more flexibility. And part of it not being personal is understanding that all humans share these emotional experiences. 
I bet none of you here has had an emotion that other human beings haven't had. There's something reassuring about that. One time I was sitting in this hall, I was right about back there, and um, I was feeling really lonely. So I was just being with it with mindfulness, and then suddenly I had this understanding, this deep understanding, that everybody feels lonely sometimes, and that there were many people in the world feeling lonely right then. It opened it all up. It wasn't so personal. It actually, I started to care. Compassion arose for all those people feeling lonely and for myself. That's what it means to not take it quite so personally. And yet, on the other hand, we do have some responsibility for the emotions that arise with us. So there's this weird paradox of, um, on one level, yeah, it's, it's my anger and I have to know how to deal with it. And on another level, it's just anger. It's a human emotion. Everybody feels it arises and passes away. Uh, in the Shambhala Sun, I, I found an article that I liked by somebody named Karen Mason Miller, and she's talking about how Thich Nhat Hanh talks about anger. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh, um, a famous, um, for those who don't know, a, a quite famous uh, Vietnamese monk. This is what Thich Nhat Hanh teaches when he suggests that we view our anger as a howling baby. No one wants to be around it, but it cannot be ignored. Someone needs to do something about that baby. That baby is yours, and you're the only one who can do anything about it. However disagreeable the infant is, you pick the baby up and put it in your lap. Then you rock and comfort her and wait. You attend to yourself without judgment or blame. In this way, anger wears itself out. The baby goes to sleep. Someone needs to do something about that baby. The baby is yours, and you're the only one who can do anything about it. That's the part where it's it's personal, right? That we take responsibility to figure out how we're going to work with difficult emotions. And then the other part is just anger. So we can also, um, as I said, a sense of humor is really, really helpful when we look at these minds. Um, Here's a story from Pema Chodron that uh, shows a certain kind of lightheartedness that we can have with our own um, emotional experiences. In this story, the experience is um, the emotion of greed or wanting. So she's talking about this Tibetan yogi, Geshe Ben. And I guess there's a bunch of hilarious stories about him. She said, whenever this eccentric fellow saw in himself any kindness or wisdom, he referred to himself as Venerable Geshe. When he saw himself getting hooked by attachment, he addressed himself as You Fool. Once when he was visiting some patrons, Geshe Ben saw an open bag of barley flour hanging on the wall. He needed some flour, and when he was left alone, he unconsciously started dipping in. Suddenly realizing what he was doing, he screamed at the top of his lungs, Thief, thief, I've caught a thief. When his host rushed in, there he was with his hand in the bag. Another time the patrons invited all the monks for a meal. Geshe Ben was seated last. As the servers were doling out his favorite yogurt, he began to panic. 
what if there's none left for me? How can that big monk there take such a huge helping? As feelings of resentment grew, he began to connive how he could move ahead of the other monks before it was too late. Then he realized with remorse what he was doing and patiently waited his turn. When they finally got to him, he put his hand over his bowl and yelled, No yogurt for this greedy fellow. This yogurt addict has already had enough. (laughs) There's a kind of um, nice lightness of heart with that story. When we, um, when we become intimate with emotions or know them quite well, there, there is a time when we just say no, right? So sometimes when, when an emotion is really overwhelming us, we can affirm no is a, is a good thing. That's one of the ways that we can um, move away from it, right? It's just like, no, um, I'm not going to believe you. I'm not going to get hooked by you. Sometimes when we um, get to know an emotion uh, well, that no comes from a place of caring for ourselves and not um, wanting to make ourselves suffer. Uh, A story related to that from my own practice is um, a number of years ago I used to uh, come visit here sometimes. This was before I became a teacher, and there was a woman who worked here who... um, I was quite envious of. I was jealous of her. She, um, she seemed to have everything that I wanted that I didn't have, right? And she had great um, relationships with the teachers, and she was teaching, and she, everybody seemed to like her, and um, she didn't seem to have any faults. And um, so I, I would find myself envious of her, and so I would run into her sometimes in the staff dining room. That's kind of the nerve center of of the place. <laughs> and so I'd come visit sometimes and I'd run into her. And so at first I thought I just didn't like her. I didn't even know that I was envious of her. It was just like, oh, I just don't like her, right? She's just not very likable. And then um, when I started to pay more attention, I realized that I was feeling envy. And so then I started to um, actually let myself feel that and feel what it was like, kind of the, the deep inadequacy that and the feeling of lack that that would be behind it. So I would explore that with mindfulness, right? And then one time she came in, or I came here and she came in the room, and I saw her, and um, it was like I had, this is old-fashioned, I know, it was like I had a tape recorder in my mind. <laughs> That's the image that I come up with. <laughs> and, and like it was on the pause button, and like my finger was going towards play, and I knew the whole story. I knew exactly how it was going to unfold. It was like I had, you know, I'd have the same story every time I'd see her. And so my finger's like going towards play. And then, and then I go, no, I don't want to do that to myself. And it wasn't like, no, envy go away. It was just like, no, I don't want to do that. So I didn't push play. And then over time I got to know her and, um, I liked her, actually. <laughs> and then we started to teach together sometimes. And um, I started to rejoice in her success. I enjoyed it. So it was this journey, right, from envy to really enjoying her success through mindfulness. 
So another paradox of um, this turning towards afflictive emotions with mindfulness is that the more that we can do that, the greater joy is in our life. It kind of is a paradoxical, it seems like, right? Because like, sometimes when I describe this, it might seem, well, that this sounds kind of grim, you know, fear, envy, anger. <laughs> yeah, that turning towards that could be grim, but it's, it's the truth of the matter is that the more that we can bring mindfulness to these kinds of afflictive emotions and the less we're ensnared and entrapped by them, the greater sense of spaciousness we have in our minds And then our beautiful qualities have so much more room to shine through. The love, the care, the joy, the enthusiasm. It has um, space to shine through. So so this, this practice of being able to understand and to see through and not be entrapped by negative emotions um, is actually a really joyous joyous kind of um, investigation. It makes us more alive in, in, in all ways. We, we, it's like a package deal, I say. The more that we can connect with what's difficult, the more we can connect with what's joyful. So, so through this practice of uh, learning how to be with thoughts and with emotions, with mindfulness, we, um, we start to really trust ourselves and our ability to, to connect with all of life or to connect with what comes our way skillfully. And, um, and when we trust ourselves, we can keep our hearts open. We don't have to be afraid of ourselves who we are, of life. We can let the metta and the kindness shine through. I think that's enough for tonight. Let's just sit for a couple of minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.